You're listening to the Discriminology Podcast, the podcast that arms you with the knowledge and the tools to dismantle discrimination. With me, one of your hosts, Malik Silao. We're back. Welcome back, everybody, to Discriminology episode eight. Um, this is your co-host Sid, and as always, I'm joined by my co-hosts Malik, Mr. Kramer, and Sandra. Um, so, and on this episode, we'll be talking about the current uh, social justice climate, and we'll be talking about the cl- current climate um, from the perspectives of the police. And we actually have uh, two very special uh, guests who will be introduced momentarily, um, two law enforcement um, officers who have been working in this field and um, have been working in this field during this time, especially, and to help us answer um, the main question of this episode, which is how can we amend um, and mend race relations between law enforcement and the black and brown community. Today we have two special guests. Um, we're joined by Lieutenant John Owen. Uh, John Owen is originally from the Bronx and he moved to Lindenhurst in 1971, where he graduated from high school and eventually went on to SUNY Oneonta. He was hired by the Nassau County Police Department in 1986, where he started as patrol and he was selected to the first problem-oriented policing program in 95. From there, he was promoted to sergeant and assigned to the 3rd Precinct. Two weeks prior to 9-11, he was transferred to the Marine Bureau and assisted in recovery efforts. Subsequently, designated to Deputy Commanding Officer of Marine Aviation until 2012, where he was reassigned back to patrol in the 8th Precinct. In 2015, he was promoted to Lieutenant and currently serves in the 8th Precinct. Also with us today, we have Officer Brandon Guest, who graduated from SUNY New Paltz with a bachelor's degree in communications, and he was hired by the Orange County Police Department, where he's been in service for the past two years. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us today, and we're excited to hear what you guys have to say. Thank you, Malik. Appreciate that. Everyone's pretty much aware of the social justice climate. So do you guys both just mind sharing just your overall sentiments of of what's going on right now? Uh, To be honest with you, I'm a little saddened by uh, what's going on these days. Um, I thought that Things were improving and um, unnecessary killings have made it uh, dramatically harder for people to get along, to people to meet halfway. It seems to be now that the violence is increasing and we're going further apart as as opposed to me and getting together in 2020. So the current social landscape right now, like I said, I'm disheartened and I'm saddened, but I'm hopeful because of things like this, so we sit down and talk to each other and have a discussion. Yes, uh, personally, I, uh, I agree with that wholeheartedly. I feel like uh, sessions like this, so where you can come together and speak, those are the type of conversations that need to be made so that uh, people from both sides that identify can come to some type of mutual understanding and there's ultimately some type of growth from there. Um, can't change the world in one day, can't be changed with one person, but Hopefully, if messages get reached across certain platforms and they're used the right way, um, anything could be possible. All right. Thank you for that. Um, and we definitely appreciate those sentiments. Do either of you mind discussing some of the recent instances of police brutality and police violence, specifically George Floyd? 
Um, I definitely want to discuss the other ones, but George Floyd seems to be the spark of this current social justice climate. And if you could walk us through regarding if protocol was followed, what went right, what obviously went wrong, I think that would be a great place for us to start. The George Floyd uh, incident was an eye-opener for, for a lot of people law enforcement. None of us, there's not a person I know that saw that video wasn't disturbed by it. I've never seen anyone kneel on someone's neck like that. For, so um, with such, I don't know, no effect on, the, on, on them, you know? And I was saddened by it. Now, you know, the whole thing is, is like whatever happened prior, Mr. Floyd is afforded, you know, to be innocent before proven guilty or otherwise. So you're actually a- acting as a judge, juror, and executioner by acting in that way. And now they're starting people that are on the other side or people who uh, have a different view of how of Mr. Floyd are starting to say that he was uh, under the influence of drugs or, or had ingested drugs. Either way, it doesn't matter what he was under the influence of. No, no person, no man or woman should be subjected to that sort of humiliation being knelt down and chucked in the middle of the street while on camera. There's absolutely nothing that he said that I disagree with. Um, in the training that I have, of course, uh, my short career as of right now, uh, in two years, I have never once met an officer that agrees with what happened. And I have never seen anybody trained to do what was executed during that day. Um, for somebody to kneel on somebody's neck, that's not something I've ever, I've ever seen. Um, in the police academy, you are either taught to put your knee on the lower back or on the stomach. There is obviously there's no um, there's no cut and dry way to make everything peachy, but to go on somebody's neck that is completely that's a no-no. I've never seen somebody do that. So um, I can't really say that there's anything there that I would say that was done right in that instance because you're not supposed to even do that to begin with, let alone eight minutes, 45 seconds. As far as whatever happened prior, it took some time for all the details to come out, regardless of what the precursors were. The conclusion was illegitimate. It wasn't, it wasn't good. So there's nothing that can be said in any defense. I don't think any law enforcement officer would uh, refute that. When, uh, so Lieutenant Owen um, said uh, before that when that video came out, I agree that I think it did, um, it definitely disturbed, I think it also opened a lot of people's eyes. But as um, officers and people in, in that field, I guess did the outcome or um, what ensued in that incident, did it surprise you? And when I say surprise you, I mean like from the perspective of an officer and being in that environment and being in that field, like have you seen similar situations? Do you think that, that the, what happened in that incident um, was a shock as far as the culture? Uh, or do you think, or you know, what, what's your opinions? Yes, um, that was a beyond shock. I have never in my life seen somebody do that. That That's not something I've ever seen before. That's not something I've seen in any training videos. That's not something that any um, instructor has ever told me to do. I I have no idea how they even got to that means. There's there's nothing that you can say to really defend that, to be honest with you. Uh, regardless of the person who's defending, I mean, uh, resisting, um, you don't go for the neck. There's other means, there's multiple people that are trying to gain compliance. And at that point, he looked to be compliant. So there was many things there that I uh, 
I disagree with. And truthfully, uh, I think justice is served. Senior officer there, who was entirely at fault for the junior officer, there was no rush. Like Brandon said, he was compliant. So why not let him stand up? Why not let him breathe? You know, he's not going to fight you anymore. He wasn't fighting you. So you have time. You can reassess the situation. Uh, to that point, so I think that's an interesting detail that there was a senior officer and the other officers involved were relatively new members of the force. It's great that we have the two perspectives of, of you two gentlemen because Brandon's relatively new and um, you're, you're more of a senior officer. What do you do if you're someone in this position? Like you're relatively new, you see something that you don't align with or you don't agree with and you know is wrong, but I'm sure there's, there's conflicting thoughts there. Truthfully, uh, morality should always rule, and that's an easy answer to say. But in the police department, the chain of command is everything. You need to respect your senior officers. You need to respect your sergeants, your lieutenants, um, your chief. To go against orders is insubordination, and that is something that is punishable um, by whatever means that is uh, seen fit by the person that is handing down that authority. In an instance like that, I feel like the only thing that an officer that didn't have time on the job could really do um, besides trying to tell that senior officer, like, look, listen, um, let's get him in the car or just just not partake in it. It's it's a it's a very uh, it's a dicey situation to be in. I know in that instance, the most that I would do is try and get him off the ground and get him in the car as quick as possible, because I don't see any reason to have him on the ground for any more than 30 seconds if he's not moving. If he's not moving, put handcuffs on him, get him in the car. To allow that to drag on and for that many people to be around the car and that individual on the ground watching it happen, that's a no-no. It doesn't matter how much time you have on the job. That is something that you recognize. That is something that you you act on because that's what you swore in to do. Of course, you will always face um, some type of penalty, but at the end of the day, when it comes to the expense of life, you swore an oath to protect and serve. So when it comes down to priority of life, that's something that you have to risk. Um, Brandon, I really like that you made that point because I think um, definitely what I hear and what and, and kind of the, the narrative that I've heard circling when, when these um, debates come up about police brutality and the police, the police killing and stuff um, is... I also, I, I, I have law enforcement in my family. I know law enforcement personally. Um, so I know that this, this comes in debate and it's, it is that if command, it is that um, camaraderie, that loyalty that officers have would kind of like for you all to touch on um, people who are listening and who have also heard these same narratives. Like, you know, where is that, where does that, that line fall of insubordination and, and, you know, more and morale because I'm sure those new officers in that moment, maybe, hopefully, had these same kind of moral conflicts in their head when they were witnessing that, but maybe had the same um, notion of not wanting to st st say anything for fear of punishment or something. So could you, either of you answer that question? Like, where, where does that line fall? Like, is, if one of those officers in that situation had said something over the course of that eight minutes, would that have been considered punishable? Or would that, you know what I'm saying? Could you, are you really answer that? Like a lot of the newer guys are trained in the, in the uh, police academy to use verbal jujitsu, verbal judo. You want to up and slow down the level of force. 
you know, if you can get the words, uh, we like to say talk someone into cuffs, that's always the best way. Um, but a lot of the younger officers are cognizant and they're not about to lose their jobs, their careers, or their freedom to cover somebody's, to cover up for somebody's bad actions. That, that's a whole different mindscape, a whole different change of attitude on, with, the, with the younger police department. And that's on account of videos, audio, body cameras. These are all things that will, will help, um, you know, curtail, well, I hope will curtail, um, you know, excessive force, especially in the minority community. So, like I said, the right messages are being um, taught. It's just a matter of now, uh, what I want to talk about later on is the maturity and um, experience of police officers on when they should be assigned to certain uh, communities or assignments. Um, so to kind of piggyback um, off Lieutenant Owen um, and about talking about like the younger officers who are coming to the academy, um, question for both of you. How, what is your opinion or how do you think um, the training is uh, in the academy or throughout, throughout your career, um, if, if applicable? How do you think the training is in regards specifically to police and, and race relations or police and policing certain racial communities, racial groups? Like what is, what is the training? How is it? Is it extensive? Is it talked about at all? Is it just in the academy and that's it? So in the academy, um you're pretty much spoken to, uh, you're taught how to speak to people. Um, they don't dive into uh, specifically, at least in my experience, not, they don't target one race and say, this is how you talk to one race. They don't say, this is one religion, this is how you talk to one religion. It's really, you treat everybody with respect. That's genuinely how people end up, are supposed to pass their background investigation to even get the job. If you're not seen as somebody that is fit psychologically or whatever comes up in your background investigation, you shouldn't be like fit for the job and more than likely you'll be weeded out in that process. If you don't have morality and respect for people, that's something that would turn up. One thing I'd like to um, add about it though, <clears throat> one of the problems I've seen over my you know, 30 some odd years in law enforcement, there are sometimes offices, there's some offices and that will treat, uh, when they go, they'll be in an uh, uh, affluent neighborhood, Mrs. Money, Mr. and Mrs. Moneybags uh, lost, you know, uh, their cat's collar, which is worth $10,000. Um, and then they'll treat them in one way, and then they'll go to, uh, you know, a, a minority community, and they'll have a person that lost their, their daughter's ankle bracelet that they bought for their communion, and kind of be, you know, flipping about it. That has to be addressed. That that is a person. It's not so much a personality defect as something that needs to be improved upon. Let's put this away. There's things that you wouldn't, you would get away with. You wouldn't get away with the Upper West Side of Manhattan that you would get away with in East New York. And that's the problem until we start having a uniform way of treating everyone, like Brandon said, with respect and that dignity from the Upper West Side to the to the seven five or East New York. That's where. That's the most important thing we got to work on in law enforcement, I believe. So if I could ask you guys both, uh, both of you gentlemen, um, I got my teaching uh, beginnings in Houston, Texas. I taught there for seven years. And when I first got down there, I was, I was surprised to find out that we had officers attached to our buildings. I was a middle school teacher and we had Officer Ojeda 
was our officer. He was there when we were there um, the whole time. And then we had a, an officer after school. And the officers that were in the building did not patrol work, but they did more community relations type work. We had the D.A.R.E. program uh, that was very popular in the, uh, in the late 80s, early 90s. We had community outreach programs. The officers would stay and play basketball with the kids after school. Um, I was wondering if, if either one of you gentlemen had any experience with any sort of programs like this community outreach, because I, I think we're all hoping that as relations have flared up, that we can move forward and really start repairing relations in the community. So I was wondering if either one of you had access to any of those programs. In my department, we have a school safety officer. Um, it's an officer that stands guard in our elementary school and, uh, you know, just stays there the entire day, ensures safety, um, says hello to the kids. And personally, I remember having that when I was growing up. It's definitely somebody that is a lot, um, that's very community oriented. And also, um, personally, in my experience, that's, that's basically all I do as an officer, as a patrolman. Um, there's many times I would be driving around my town and I'll see kids playing basketball. That's, that's what I love to do. I'm not going to change myself just because I'm wearing a uniform. So I'll stop by, I'll play basketball with the kids. And I realized that it's a little different when, uh, when you're wearing a uniform than versus you just being plain clothes. And I've gotten many messages after the fact saying that um, it meant a lot to certain people. And I would have never thought that, to be completely honest with you. It, it didn't really dawn upon me. I just felt like it's it's something like people need to understand that uh, when they see the police, they don't have to be in fear. Like there's there's no reason for somebody to wear a uniform just to incite fear. And there are good people out there. The good outweighs the bad. And uh, just because some idiot did something in Wisconsin doesn't mean that me or Lieutenant Owens are a bad person. You bring up a, an interesting point, uh, Officer Guest. The general cognizant individual black, white, whatever race, understands that all police officers are not bad people. I would say that's an ignorant concept to hold on to. But um, I also feel that certain professions can't afford to have any bad people. For example, Chris Rock had a pretty entertaining analogy. What if American Airlines said, most of our pilots land, but some of them don't. The ones that don't land, they crash into mountains, but they're just bad apples. Some professions just can't have quote unquote bad apples. How do we weed those people out? Well, that, that is a, a matter of, of um, you know, supervision and also with regard to civilian complaints, stuff like that. There's, there, you know, I'm trying to, I'm, I have a way to put this, but like New York City Police Department, for example, is 25,000 people. It's more than most communities. It's bigger than the community I live in. Ideally, you would like to have no bad apples, but when you're talking that many people, that statistically, you're not going to be able to achieve it. What you have to do as a supervisor or an administrator is when you see that person and you see and, and that person acting out in a bad way, also, I, you want to, if they want to work in a minority community, why? Why do they want to work there? What's their motivation? You know? Um, you know, some guys, I'm not saying if your motivation is that you're going to go there and you're going to be a hot dog and you're going to get all these medals and, and you're going to be a superstar. But meanwhile, 
you're kind of trampling on people's rights, well then, then you don't belong there. You don't, you know, we need to settle you down a little bit. You need some more seeming, some more, some more maturity before you're able to, you know, uh, we have to follow rules no matter what happens. You know, we, you know, that a, a search has to be a legal search. It doesn't matter if guys are hiding contraband here or there, we have to follow the rules. So when, once you see guys cutting corners or, you know, when they come in with an arrest and, and they can't articulate how they got from point A, which is initial observation, to probable cause, then you have a problem as a sergeant or a lieutenant. And that's when you have to start looking at your people and saying, is this guy one of my bad apples? Over my 30 years, I've, this, I've seen corners cut unnecessarily you know be like wait a minute that's not something i would do but i've heard it secondhand and and hopefully you know like i said as an administrator i've never put up with that i don't put up with guys rifling through cars and and searching people randomly it's not that's not the way you're supposed to operate <clears throat> you have to follow the rules you're a professional police officer and if you can't be a professional like you said malik you don't belong doing that job i kind of feel like we have evolved um, past the point of kind of looking at these problems as if it's bad apples, meaning like the police, the, the police force, the mm -hmm. institution of police is a bucket of apples and there are a few rotten apples in that bucket. I think that we've gotten to the point now with everything that's been going on in the, this past year and in decades prior, I think we can safely say that it's, it's the bucket that needs to, that's, that needs to be um, repaired, not the, not the apples, the few rotten apples that are in it. And I say that, when I say that, I'm, I'm saying that aside from, obviously in every profession, there's going to be people who don't do the right thing across the board, right? But I think the problem that we've gotten to is that the, um, the culture behind policing, and when I say culture, I mean these things like the wall that Lieutenant um, Owen alluded to earlier, and these, the notion of the loyalty and how, you know, you don't, you don't, speak against your higher ups, you don't say anything against, you know what I'm saying, you follow orders no matter what. And like these kind of, these kind of um, instilled practices and values in policing that have, that have evolved from the beginning of time, those bad apples that have been on the police force since from the beginning of time, there've been bad apples in the police from, from slavery, right? But I think what happens is that when, when these bad apples are now in, a, in an environment and in a culture where their colleagues, their whoever, their other higher ups, whoever it is, are killing innocent people in the street and nothing's happening, right? There's no repercussion, there's no prosecution, there's, you know, I'm saying people are getting paid leave, et cetera, et cetera. Like when when the response to these practices are are what they are, it it sends a message about the the culture of policing. I think that's the culture of policing that needs to be repaired from the beginning, from the training in the academy, from you know, making the training um, extensive in race relations and making that a, a part of the training for these officers so that, these, so that these bad apples can be weeded out from the beginning. And they don't, we don't have to wait until they're in a squad car and on the street policing and patrolling to realize that they're bad apples. Um, if either of you had anything to say about that. With regard to that, like I said, the, the culture of policing is, is improving. And, it has, and that, that the blue wall is is more of a TV thing than reality. Um, but also, when you look at the bucket, you look at the that hundreds of thousands of police officers, black, white, Hispanic, whatever, all over the nation doing really, really good things. 
You know, uh, you got to take that into consideration with the, listen, more than one is a tragedy. However, there's more good being done than bad. You know, um, I would lay down, if, if Brandon was in jeopardy, I would lay down my life for him. That is the loyalty between police officers. That's what I would do as a, a brother police officer. I would give my life Same. for him, but I would give it for you as well. You know, because that's, that's what I'm, I, that's the profession I chose. And you're just as important to me as my sister or my mother or my wife. So in totality, the, 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 what's good about the policing is so enormous. Uh, you know, the level of goodness that's, or think good things that have done, uh, children being delivered, children saved, uh, old folks. Uh, uh, we do hundreds of 80 cases, uh, number of lives being saved overall is positive and like i said but and right now it serves a political purpose to some people to divide us and to show just the bad so i just that just that's my two cents like i said the, you don't need to throw the baby out of the bathwater because so much good is being done with it um i just want to give you that my, that my opinion on that i agree 100 percent with that um the good like i said it outweighs the bad uh, tremendously. Um, of course, that doesn't mean that the bad is, uh, is um, I guess, looked over. Of course, there's always bad in anything. Um, if I was to say that um, in all my years of basketball, I was to find out that I had a teammate that came out later on to say some racist comments, I would have never known because during my time with him, uh, nothing came out. So you don't see things until they actually happen. So for me to just look around and say, okay, that's a bad apple. I have no cause to say that. So sometimes you have to witness something to act on. And that's not like, it's, it's difficult because it's not a perfect world. It's not something that is easily solved. Like there's no answers to this, but the good outweighs the bad. I haven't witnessed somebody do anything nowhere near egregious as anything that we see on TV in my year, in my two years of working. And uh, of course, like I said, no matter what I do with my job and my badge, um, somebody across the country can do something. And then next thing you know, people are calling for my job, calling for my life. But I still have to go to work regardless. The next day, when somebody calls 911, I have to be there because that's my sworn duty. No matter what anybody has to say, somebody can turn around and say, no, I don't want you here. But if somebody's life is in danger, I am having to be there. If you look at the totality of everything, the statistics show overwhelmingly that the good strongly outweighs the bad. And many times when you see these egregious acts online, the information that gets put out immediately is quote unquote clickbait until you know all the facts and there's many things that i can back and say is absolutely horrible then there's other instances where i can say the full story wasn't out and everybody thinks that it was one way when it went another so this is kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier but i feel that some people may feel better or more protected if people who look like them police their neighborhoods so i wanted to know what you guys thought about that I disagree with that only because that 
segregates us more than we have to be. I think that, um, like I said, um, I've been a cop for 30 some odd years. Um, I've never had a problem. Like I said, the only, my only concern would be is if you are going to, goes back to my, my motivation and maturity level. Um, you know, you, if you, if you grew up in uh, an all white neighborhood your entire life and you, and you really never had come across, you know, um, a lot of people, you know, uh, black or Hispanic and, and now all of a sudden, you know, you go from a uh, lily white suburbia to, you know, East New York, you know, then you have maybe have something to prove, you know, or you think you have something to prove. And that's where the, the problems begin is if you're not prepared mentally or you don't have the maturity or you don't have the right motivation. Like I said, if you're going to go in there and say, hey, listen, I'm going to be, I'm going to be an honest cop. I'm going to try to help as many people as I can. And I don't care whether it's black, white, or, or, or any other color. But I'll tell you one of the real problem, one of the real problems that with regard to that is that I, I, I feel bad for the younger black police officers now that are trying to do the right thing, join the police departments, and then are uh, accused of being a sellout. Oh, you're a sellout. Yes. You're doing this. 100%. And um, I had to address that with one of my police officers after one of the rallies, not the one in uh, Farmingdale. But he was the subject of a lot of vitriol by other people that would call, called him those names and worse. And I just, you know, I wanted to say to him, and just like I, I said to Brandon that, hey, listen, we're we're all together with you. We're behind you 100%. And I'm sorry that you had to go through that. And that's going to be one of the things, Sydney, that is going to have to be on on your end is to encourage you know, younger um, uh, black men or women to take jobs in law enforcement, but also to have it accepted that, that this is a profession, that they're doing the right thing. Their motivation is right. They're going in to help people, to serve people. And just because this is what they chose as their profession doesn't make them less black or less anything than anyone else. And I, like I said, for, for Brandon, he's got two years on. It's a, tough, it's a tough road. And especially when you have you know, people that you, you think would support you be, um, belittle you. And I'm, I, like I said, I'm, I'm sure he's felt that. I'm, I'm not speaking for him, but I'm, I'm, not, I'm not silly. I'm not uh, a stupid man. I've been around the block. Um, so, Lieutenant Owen, do you think that um, officers um, policing the neighborhoods that they either grew up in or grew up near has any benefits? Because I think when, when, I think when, when Sandra asked that, again, I'm not speaking for you, Sandra, correct me if I'm wrong, please. Um, when she asked that, I, I don't think she meant like, you know, only black, like black officers only policing black neighborhoods are only policing the neighborhoods they grew up in, but do you think that officers, across, and across all, any racial group, black, white, purple, do you think that there are benefits to an officer policing the neighborhood that they grew up in? Because at least, for, again, for the uh, police uh, law enforcement in my life that I know, you know, pe people, I know there's definitely a sense of, 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 again, comfort, transparency, community, those things when I see an officer that I either grew up with or grew up knowing policing my neighborhood, because I think what, I think what that 
does, um, which is a benefit, I think that that could help in mending that, that those relations and maybe lessening the fear that people have of officers, making it, making it, making officers more personal, because like you said, they're in a profession to help, like they're, they're putting the lives on the line to help people and to help make communities safer. So do you think that there are any benefits to, to that? Of course, it's, it's definitely a benefit of, of knowing the neighborhood, but also it's a drawback as well, because you know, um, now I grew up in the same neighborhood with you and I know your brother or your sister and, and I catch him doing something. Am I going to be, am I going to, you know, be, can I take myself apart from and say, all right, I'm acting as a police officer now, not your uncle or, you know, your friend. So that's, that's a drawback too. But there's really, if you grew up in that neighborhood and you're familiar with the neighborhood, there's not a lot of drawbacks to that, especially when you get to, you know, uh, you know, the people, the people who want to tell you things. And, and uh, you know, me, you know, we had um, one lady in um, used to make uh, pies for the cops in Roosevelt, uh, <laughs> but she would tell them things, too, you know, but uh, it was nice. And uh, and so that was that kind of back and forth. It, like I said, there is no like I said, as long as you can separate yourself from when it's time to be a cop and it's when it's time to be your friend. To that point, uh, Lieutenant Owen, the black community, um, minority communities in general are associated with being higher crime areas. What do you believe is the derivative of crime? Because there's a lot of people that think that crime is a derivative of just being black or being a specific race. I would like to know your personal opinion. I would like to know if there's a general sentiment within the force as in what are the root causes of crime? Cause I feel like that is, that's probably an important answer to have, you know, as, as the entity that's supposed to solve crime. I agree. I am not a sociologist. Um, the root I don't believe that poverty is the root derivative of crime. I think, um, you know, it's people, places and things, you know, if you, if you're not raised by moral or, people have a sense of right and wrong, you're not going to be a person that does right, uh, does right, no right from wrong. With regard to the, um, like communities like Roosevelt, Al Long Island, 90% of that community is a hardworking community. They're out, you know, and then just like any other community, just like Bethpage, just like Farmingdale, they're out there. And unfortunately there is, you have gang influences, uh, you have, a lot of single-person homes, uh, single moms, and um, and like I said, now you don't have you know you have kids that are looking for direction, and they're looking in the wrong way, and they're getting pulled into things that they would not necessarily do on their own. So, um, like I said, I think it's um, it's unfortunate, but there's there's certain aspects, there's certain um, under the um, undercurrents in the minority community that make it harder. You can't just, you know, bring a broad brush, say, oh, this town's bad because it's black. This town's bad because it's white. You know, it's every town has its own problems. But like I said, with regard to uh, like a, a lower a lower income class neighborhood like Roosevelt, there's definitely problems with schools and the parents, homework, uh, keeping account of kids and you know, parents trying to work, you know, it's, it's, it's tough. It's a hard, it's a hard thing to answer. That's why I'm like, I'm ambivalent about it. Cause I'm not really an expert on it. I'll, I'll speak for myself. Um, I'm definitely, because I, I 
I went to Farmingdale, but I live, you're familiar with Long Island, uh, Lieutenant. Um, I went to Farmingdale, but I grew up in the Amityville community for the most mm-hmm. part. I saw a lot of kids that had just less opportunities than myself just because they went to a different school. I firmly believe that if they had some of the same resources that I had to in Farmingdale, their lives would be a little bit different. I don't think crime is a, is a simple, this is 100% the reason that that's 100% the reason. I'm not advocating for that, but I do think poverty is a strong driver of it. I think most people that commit crimes don't want to turn to that life. Unfortunately, the way our, our economic system is set up, many individuals that belong to minority communities have less options. And I do believe that can cause someone to resort to crime. Mm. I, I'm, I'm a little bit disagree with you there. I think that, uh, you know, a, a, a small man or a small woman can get beyond that. Um, you know, um, a lot of the problems that are, that's affecting not just the black community, but the white community as well, is this drug addiction. You know, people will do anything to get, you know, hands on, you know, heroin or Oxycontin, as you saw, you know, at these, and like I said, it was two white, uh, white couple killed a pharmacist for oxys. you know, something that, you know, they're probably not evil people, but they were driven to it through their addiction. And so um, that's what I'm saying. I don't think that poverty is, is the, the main cause. Uh, a lot of people with dignity, they are poor. You know, you don't need to have a lot of money to be, to be honorable. You know, that's my own feeling. I guess I'll jump in here um, from, a sociolo- from a sociological standpoint because my degree is in sociology. Um, there, are, there are a number of, yeah, there, there is no one, um, one root or one cause for crime. Um, there are several causes. But in this country specifically, uh, poverty is definitely a, a significant one. It's definitely um, uh, one of the driving factors. And that is specifically in this country, that's because of the, of the extensive wealth gap in this country. Poverty um, is written, it's all over. And so, and when you are, when you are starving and you have nothing and you haven't eaten in three days, and you have nothing, you have to be sleeping, sleeping in, you know, on the street for three days, like the, these, it's, it's scientifically proven, like these, those stressful um, situations, those stressful environments, constantly living, living through them day after day after day for months and months and years can drive anybody to do anything. And I think what, what, when we say that poverty is a, is a main, is, is a factor, it's that, it's the fact that because of the, of the, um, the wealth gap in this country and the fact that there are so many people in these impoverished situations that those situations, again, people are not, don't want to, you know, turn to committing crimes or turn to, but it's a, a lot of the time it's, it's a means of survival. Like this is, this is, these, these people are in situations and are desperate and are trying to survive. And so in these communities, these low-income communities, that also because of the race, the racism and the and redlining, the things we've all discussed previously on why these communities tend to be predominantly people of color, um, these 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 poor communities, that it's again causes this um, kind of uh, notion that black communities commit more crimes, people in black communities commit more crimes, when in fact any poor community across any racial group, again, if these things are gonna happen, when you are starving and have nothing and are, and are trying to survive, 
your the likelihood that you will commit a crime to do so is is very high. Very valid. Yeah, I would I would also say from uh, from an educational standpoint and from a resource access standpoint, opportunity standpoint, uh, the the impoverished neighborhood that I taught in in Houston, I had fifty kids in my classroom. You know, there there was how do I get to fifty kids? I came to Farmingdale, I had twenty kids in my classroom. The just just the sheer numbers and the sheer economics of the different situations led to different opportunities. So many, many more kids from from Farmingdale will go on to a two-year college, a four-year college, the armed forces, because they grew up K through 12 knowing that these opportunities were there for them. When I taught in Houston, most of what we tried to do, I was in the middle school, was convince the kids to go to high school. It wasn't just, hey, you're gonna go to college. It was, hey, you gotta go to high school. You gotta get a high school degree because even that seems so unattainable for so many of our kids. Trying to convince them, we show them all sorts of economic statistics about, about salaries, you know, how much more you make with a high school diploma, without. But the, but the standards were so low, you know, that was such a low bar for me to convince the kids to go to high school. So we, we tried to target the kids who certainly could handle college, but were economically unable to go to college. So that's why you see some programs now, again, New York, when we have the Excelsior program and you have, you have kids that, that normally wouldn't be able to pay for college go. But I think it's not just the fact that, it's, that there's poverty and not just the fact that there's, there's certainly despair, but there's a sense of there's no opportunity for us, that these opportunities just don't, simply don't exist unless you're, you're, you're a special kind of person. So that, that is uh, certainly out there. So if, if I could ask you guys, we at our school at Farmingdale, we just uh, got a message that the precincts are going to be starting uh, a youth council program, that the police officers are looking for young people, uh, both in high school and recent grads, to act as liaisons in the community with the police. Uh, Lieutenant Owen, have, have you heard of this program? I haven't heard about it yet. Uh, this probably being uh, funneled through the uh, pop offices. Uh huh. I think it's a it's a great idea. Um, like I said, you, the only problem is is that, like I spoke to before, is that uh, it's going to be hard to get. Um, it's going to be difficult to get um, a lot of minority uh, kids involved because they don't want to be seen. You know. Uh, working with the police or, you know, whatever. Or it, it's, we're not, they're going to be, you know, they'll feel they'll be ostracized if they are working with us or, or cooperating with us. You know, it, that's one of the things we have to get over. We have to be able to uh, make that, pull that gap together. That's why this thing is so important. This discussion is so important that we, that we try to uh, lessen the gap between the minority community and the police uh, what the police does needs, and just like you said in your speech, like education needs uh, people of color to teach. Uh, law enforcement needs more people, uh, more minority people to show that, you know, that this is, a, 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 it is a noble f profession, but, you know, it's not just for white Irish guys, you know. <laughs> that is that is really good. Um, that, and that's a really great point. Um, when we recruit, in the high school when we recruit for social justice programs and and Malik can definitely speak to this when Malik 
went into the honors program or the AP program, I know Malik had his friends say, what are you doing? Malik, maybe you could speak to that. Well, thanks for putting me on the spot, Mr. Kramer. <laughs> but um, I've been putting you on the spot for the last 10 years. It's definitely true. It's, there is definitely, you definitely feel like you're a little bit caught in the middle when um, there, I, I, I do think that is a, an internal black community issue that we have to resolve amongst ourselves. I think that's a response to not believing that we can achieve more as, as a collective group. You know, would I, give, would I be made fun of being in honors if my friend thought he could be in honors too? Probably not. So I realize as, a, as an older adult that that's usually a projection of their own self-dissatisfaction. Yeah, I, I just think it goes back to what you were saying before as, as disseminating that to the rest of the, to the Black youth that, you know, we can achieve more and there, there's more out there for us than maybe certain communities portray or maybe certain communities even allow, honestly. I really like that you said that, Malik, um, because I, I, one, I definitely agree. Um, and it, it's problematic. It is. It's problematic in, in terms of trying to move forward and progress. Um, this mindset that a lot of uh, Black people have that, you know, you're a traitor or a sellout, you know, for, for joining the force or for, you know, or for just thinking, even if you just think that not all cops are bad people, like people, you know, Black people think that, some Black people think that that's a problem too. But I, I like that Malik pointed out um, the reason behind that kind of mindset because I, I, I think that it's worth noting that, you know, I'm talking for myself um, and privileged to have not, to, you know, to have grown up in the community that I grew up in and to have law enforcement in, in my life personally and to, and to, and to have witnessed and act and seen growing up um, all the good that police officers do in communities and all the good that they do in society. You know, because I've witnessed that, because I've, I've been in these programs, I know about these police programs, um, community outreach programs, I know that that is the case. And so I know that um, these problems persist, but that it's not across the board. And I think that, that that same thing is not the same for a lot of other people, which is why this mindset kind of came about. You know what I mean? Like, you know, when you grow up, you're a 16 year old um, or 18 year old, whoever old person, and you, and you grew up and you, and you grew up seeing every single day, day in and day out, you know, your family being um, brutalized by police. You know, you see these, you, like you grew up in your community seeing these things, seeing officers not doing the right thing you know, your friends, your family member have been taken for you in, in jail, all that, you know, you've seen, you've experienced and lived these things that you're not going to have the same notion as someone like me who has seen the good and, and, know, and has personally witnessed that. And so that, that mindset, while it is a problem and it's ignorant and it's not, and, and it's wrong, you know, that that's where it comes from. It comes from the fact that, you know, if, if, I've, if I've never seen an officer in my entire life do a single thing of good in my community, then I'm, am I going to look at my friend who now wants to become a cop and be like, okay, well, are you going to do anything different? Like, what are you going to do? You're going to do that. And that's an issue for me, you know? So yes, we do have to get past that notion that people wanting to join and become officers, black people specifically, um, is a problem because it's not, again, going back to what we talked about in the beginning, the only way for these issues to, um, be resolved is for, is, is, is through collective effort. It's through everybody, you know? And so the relations have to change on both sides. Uh, I personally think that one affects the other. That's my personal opinion. But yes, this mindset, this, this notion is ignorant and it, and it is problematic. You know, officers 
are on putting their lives online to do good and to help people. And that is, that is what, that is what that profession is, is, is supposed to do. And so if you know somebody who has that mindset or you, you yourself might think that a black person doing police, talking to police is a, is a problem to think about it for a second, take a step back, ask yourself why you think that, excuse me, ask yourself why you think that. And maybe think about, you know, again, the, that this is, it's not across the board. It's not one, one brushstroke. As a black officer, um, my hometown that I grew up in, I spent 25 years there. It was founded in 1809. It took till 2019 for them to hire a black officer. I am the first and only in my department and in my town. So every single day I put on the uniform, I am hit with adversity. So when I put on the uniform and I hear from my friends like, oh, you're a sellout. Like, oh, what are you doing? Oh, man, I can't even talk around BG no more. He's a traitor. Like, all right, bro, would you rather me knock on your door when you call 911 or somebody you don't know? So there's many things that sound good at face value at being a police officer in your hometown. And also there's a lot of things that are behind the scenes. So I go to a scene and somebody I went to high school with OD'd. That's going to affect me differently as opposed to somebody that has no idea who that person is, shows up to do their job, and is able to have a sober analysis of what is going on. There's a lot of conflicting things when I walk into the station, I see my high school basketball teammates sitting there on the bench. There is things that are pretty difficult to go through, and at the same time, it sounds like it's a great idea at face value. Sometimes if you, Taking into consideration what the officer might go through, there could be some grounds for people coming together a little more because the same people that would call me a sellout and say, what are you doing? Why are you a police officer? Are you going to shoot me too? Are the same people that were asking for a PBA card. Those same people will still talk to me like I'm a regular person when I'm out of clothes. And then as soon as I put on a uniform, they want nothing to do with me. So that is deterrence in itself for any type of diversity to have in law enforcement. If everybody quote unquote has something to say when they see a black officer, why would somebody feel like that's something that they want to do when people will openly acknowledge that a solution to one of the problems is bringing more diversity. So you're doing essentially deterrence of having somebody that want to take the stand and join the fight by making jokes of it and making it seem like a non-socially acceptable problem. And in my department, it's, it is difficult. I got called the N-word the first month I walked into the station because somebody that got arrested was sitting there on the bench and said, how would you feel if I called you that? There's nothing I can do about that as an officer. As an officer, somebody can spit in your face. You can't do nothing. So things like that that you get subject to, it's not gonna make the news, not at all. But if somebody is to call me that and then spit in my face and then I did something about it, I would be on World Star, I'll be on the front paper. Personally, because I know what I'm standing for, what I took the job for, and essentially what my hiring means as far as not only historical, but moving forward, I have to hold myself to that standard. And that's what people do in this profession. 
you have to take all the bad in and still act and do right. And that is some things that people tend to look over because one idiot messes up. And there are a lot of things that aren't articulated greatly at face value, but it's, it's a difficult situation all around when you take the job to help the people you love, help people that you know, try to be a relatable face, and then you don't even get their support. A very fair point that you made. I, I think it's uh, a graduated version of the question Mr. Kramer asked me regarding um, certain advances to just better your own life or better your own experience or better the experience of the people around you. So it's definitely problematic and it's definitely something that us as members of the black community can definitely um, have internal discussions and, and create a situation where you don't have that experience when you, when you feel like you're trying to solve the problem. Um, before we ran out of time, I, st- I wanted to touch on two more aspects. So I know we brought up George Floyd earlier in the podcast. Um, full transparency, I didn't expect either of you to really detest to that because that was kind of a a very blatant example. Um, But there are more ambiguous examples of, of interactions. Like for example, um, Rayshard, Rayshard Brooks or Jacob Blake. So we could discuss either, but I'm just curious to know what you two thought about those two particular scenarios. And, and would you mind walking us through protocol and, and a little more convoluted situations such as those two? First of all, um, I like to give uh, just my respect and um, appreciation to Officer Guest. That was very heartfelt, and uh, and I could, I'm as an outsider as, as a, um, I could see, you know, what I want. If anyone could take away from this discussion tonight, is to be put yourself in his shoes. I've seen how uh, black cops are treated. Some black cops are treated in, in, in by other people in their community, and it, it's it's unfair and it's, un, it's not right. And it's the most dangerous profession for a black man or woman to be in because if something goes wrong and me and Brandon are running down the street with our guns out, uh, Brandon will be ahead because I'm a fat guy. But who do you think is in more danger of being shot, me or him? You know, same exact, we're both, war, we're both wearing shields, we both have the same gun, and we're both after the same guy. You know, in my heart of hearts, and I tell this to my new cops all the time, especially my cops, um, the, the black cops, I said, please, please be careful. This is a dangerous profession for you, and, and it's even more dangerous because you could get shot by another cop. So my respect, and um, like if you can get, we can, uh, a basket full of cops like, off as a guest, we would be in much better shape. But getting back to Mr. Brooks, um, I actually had a disagreement with the, um, a black sergeant I worked with. He's since retired. And we had a discussion about this, about Mr. Brooks. And, and my opinion was that, you know, he just had beat up, he just had, you know, he's the guy they woke up in the drive through, right? And he. That's correct, much, yes. He pretty much through both those cops are beaten and was running away. Now, my opinion was, and Gary disagreed with me, which was funny because I say, you know who he is, you have his ID, you know, I would have let him go. You know, you're going to get him another day. To use deadly force in that position, 
There's two of you, even if you would have shot the guy with a taser. I don't want to Monday when the quarterback, but it, it was a hard decision. Like the guy had the taser, but like I said, you know, it's a, it's a DWI stop basically. So if he gets away with it, if he runs away, you know where he is, you go to his house tomorrow, you know, but like I said, I don't want to put myself in their shoes, but that's, but on the other hand, if with legally, if he were to run away and hurt somebody, then the cops on the hook for the actions of that. He didn't uh, apprehend the guy, but is it worth the guy's life? No, I don't think so. I'll speak on the other, uh, the other incident to Jacob Blake. Um, for what I understand, the officers were there for a felony arrest warrant and, uh, the man had a knife in his hand. Um, I believe they attempted to gain compliance by telling him to drop the knife and then they since tased him. The taser did not also um, get him to comply with orders and they tried to tell him to drop the knife and get on the ground. At this point, the officers had him at gunpoint and said, drop the knife, get on the ground. At this instance, um, Mr. Blake continued to walk to the door, to the car door, and since opened that car door. After he opened the car door, he was shot seven times. Um, at face value, seeing something like that aggravates me. When I put myself in those shoes, although me personally being 6'5", 230, I could have possibly went about it maybe a little differently. But at the same time, when somebody goes to a vehicle after they have already been told that they are under arrest and have since resisted, there is nothing that I can do as an officer that does not place me in fear for my life. There is videos out there that I have been shown in the academy for my training that when somebody goes to a vehicle, after they have been told to comply with orders and they go back to a vehicle, sometimes it ends bad like deadly for the officers. And that's what I am trained. Um, I understand why they met those means. I feel like they could have done more to stop him from getting to the car sooner. But once he opened the car door, barring the circumstances for why they were out there for a felony arrest, I understand. I don't like um, the fact that anybody had to die. I'm not condoning that at all. But I do understand why, because that is something that I have seen in my own training videos. Um, there's a video that I have sent Malik, an instance where two officers were wrestling outside their car with, uh, with a man. Um, they attempted to tase him. They were wrestling with him. They were punching him, kicking him, tasing him, and he was still fighting. The man eventually broke free, ran to the driver's side of his car door, opened it, and then killed both of those officers with the firearm. That is the things that they show us in our training because for somebody to take their hand and bring it to their hip and pull something from their hip and bring it up and point it at you, and for me to see that happen and then for me to react and try to recreate the same movement, I'm dead. So as a police officer, you are taught to 
always mitigate the threat before it gets to the point where it's your life. Like I said, I do not condone somebody dying, but when it comes down to multiple opportunities to comply and not go to the vehicle, I don't think they had much other choice than to use that. I also brought up a scenario with Malik before. Um, if somebody was to break in your house with a knife and you had the option of using pepper spray, a frying pan, a baton, or a firearm, what are you using? I do appreciate you drawing examples to try and put someone in someone else's shoes um, because I feel like that's the best way to, to gain an understanding of the other perspective. The only thing that I don't agree with asking me that question is the fact that I am not a professional. So how I would react in a situation of, of distress doesn't really matter because I'm not a trained professional such as the lieutenant and yourself. But um, yes. in regards to the Jacob Blake scenario, I do have issues with the compliance narrative and i don't have issues with the compliance narrative because i because i believe that a police officer should jeopardize their own life the only reason why i have an issue with it is because the compliance narrative doesn't seem to apply across the board there are many instances of white perpetrators assaulting even having deadly weapons and being in full-on firefights with police and surviving to take the mugshots so I guess my problem is if the rules are the rules, where it's like, for example, I don't know the rules, but I'm just saying as an example, if someone goes to a car and that warrants them being shot, if those are the rules, fine. And then, and then that becomes a legislative issue, but those rules need to apply across the board. And I don't think we're in a place where the rules are the same for every person and every interaction. No two instances are exactly the same. Nothing is perfect. And that does not mean that there is not a, um, it's not like a one-sided affair. Like I understand that statistics and the way that is broadcasted is for sure gonna favor uh, black men being killed at a higher rate. I am not here to refute that at all. I am just saying in that instance, I understand why those means were met. Now, in other instances where um, somebody is wrestling with a police officer and they don't get shot at the end of the day, I can't tell an officer you need to kill him. You understand that? I can't say that there's, there's no reason for somebody to say, no, you should have shot him. It's whatever that officer is thinking at that time. And as bad as that sounds, I can't put myself in the people's shoes in instances where they feel like they're fearing for their lives. That is, that is not an answer that's easily uh, given. With regard to that, I, I'm not familiar enough with it. Um, I've seen it. I've turned a lot of it off because it's just so disheartening. But uh, what Officer Guest uh, says has a lot of credence. You know, you, it's, uh, it's uh, hard. To, it's, you're talking split-second decisions. And, um, and I would never, ever want to, thankfully, in my, in my career, I've never had to um, be in that position to have to choose and you're talking in tenths of a second on whether you use deadly physical force or not so um, you know I'm not familiar enough to give an intelligent answer uh, on it other than um, you know I don't condone anyone being killed you know 
it's just uh, it's 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 a, but it, it is a tough choice. Um, so a lot of cops will say, "I'd rather be uh, I'd rather be tried by twelve than carried by six. So I know I know we're kind of crossing over two situations, as in Rayshard Brooks and um, Jacob Blake, and and I heard your sentiments on Rayshard Brooks. As far as Jacob Blake, do do we feel that seven shots was excessive? Was that in line with protocol or because I, I'm never going to tell someone that they shouldn't account for their own life, but um, where is the line of excessive force? I'm sure, I'm sure there has to be like a, an implicit rule on that. Well, in the, the, the landmark case for that is uh, Tennessee versus Garner, which is 1985 was a young, a young man would had done a burglary. He was running away and he was shot as he was going over the fence. So with regard to the, the, the case you're talking about, and, and as, Ms., as Officer Gass pointed out, so now you have, a, so the Supreme Court said that if you have a fleeing felon armed with a deadly weapon, you're justified using deadly physical force. That's the law. Um, it's not, but like I said, you can't say, and it, it's, it's hard, you can't say cut and dry that, uh, would five shots been enough, one shot been enough, was seven too many. I wasn't there, and I don't know enough about it to judge. And I don't want to be, uh, like I said, I don't want to be talking out of school Monday morning quarterbacking. All I do know is that, uh, as Officer Guest pointed out, um, he was a flea and fell in home with a deadly weapon, and uh, he should have complied. Um, like I said, after that, that's I don't, I really can't comment on what happened after that, other than. He shouldn't have been, you know, carrying a, uh, a knife and he should have complied and he'd probably still be alive. That's the hard facts of that. So I think um, the common, other than the George Floyd incident, the common thread here is fear on behalf of the, the responding officer. So I want to ask more of a general question. Usually when you see these instances of police violence and brutality, the primary driver of that is the, that the responding officer feared for their life. So I'd, I'd like to know, A, what would make the two of you afraid in the situation that you're responding to? And B, does fear drive um, response or does training drive, drive response? So my father was NYPD street crime in the 80s. Um, my brother's a sergeant in the city right now and I'm a second year officer. My father was telling me a story about how his partner got killed. Um, they did a traffic stop and they were in narcotics. So narcotics is drugs. Um, as the car pulled over, three car doors opened, people went in all different directions and then somebody lit up the vehicle. There is no cause, you don't know, you're just pulling over a car. It can happen just like that. So. Every single time I get out of my vehicle, no matter who it is, I am fearful that something could happen because the day that you get comfortable is the day that you do get killed. I am terrified to even close my eyes. I work midnights. I'm terrified to even close my eyes in the car because it is a target. People will come up on you and just shoot you. It's happened to NYPD officers as well. Um, so my father told me that story. And... I want to say a week or two later, I got into an incident. 
I'm on my way responding to a call for service. Um, there was a dispute up in uh, up on some road between a neighbor and a lawn mowing company. So I'm responding to the call, and as I'm driving, this car is on the opposite lane and almost hits me head on. I had to fly off the road and almost go into the ditch. So I'm still a rookie cop. Like I'm probably I'm probably on the road at this point, maybe two months by myself. So I just got off field training office. Um, I just got off field training. I was just left my FTO, my field training officer. And that car almost hit me head on. So I make a K turn. I'm like, whoa, this guy almost killed me. So I start pursuing the vehicle and I'm going 101 in a 45 trying to catch this guy. And I still can't catch him. I get to the nearest stop sign. I see the guy go in front of the car that stopped at the stop sign, go into the opposite lane of traffic, cut across a four-way intersection, almost nearly cause a four-car MVA, spin around a statue monument, and then bang a quick left going towards the next town. And I'm following behind this guy, Lights and Sirens. I'm putting it over county. And in my department, we ride alone. So I don't have a partner. My partner's on the other side of town. As a matter of fact, he's in the next town because we left my town. So I don't have any backup. I'm by myself. So we're driving into the next town and I'm calling for any available unit to help me out. We bang a quick right and we're going down into this wooded area. It's called the trestle. It's a wooded area. It's like trails and all that. The guy pulls over, jumps out of the car and reaches in his coat. I am in fear for my life. Why are you running from the police? Take me into the next town, jump out of your vehicle and then reach into your coat. I took my firearm out and I said, put your hands up. I do not know what you're doing. Put your hands up. Please listen, comply, put your hands up. He put his hands up. I took off his coat and I made sure that he had no firearm on him. As I'm doing that, the passenger car door opened and my heart sank even more because I did not see that coming. So if somebody had ill intentions, I could have got shot in the head, maybe twice, maybe by him or whoever was in the passenger seat. I was in fear. But because of my training, I've seen everything that was going on, and I decided to take a chance to assess what exactly he was doing. But it's a split second like that, because if his hand came out like this and I saw something, I probably wouldn't be here. But because I had my firearm out before I even let him bring his hand up, I had an opportunity to at least nip that in the butt and at least recognize that I would have been okay because I would have beat him to the punch. But if I sat there, waited for him to pull a gun out and be like, oh, damn, I should have probably took out my taser, I'd be dead. So when an officer has a reason to be in fear by any means, if a person is standing at the end of a hallway and said, with a knife and says, I'm going to kill you, if I have another partner with me, one person will have a taser out, one person will have a firearm. Taser is not 100% effective. If it has two prongs, if one prong hits you and the other one doesn't, you didn't get tased at all. You felt nothing. You're going to eat it. If both prongs hit you, you have five seconds. If that person is just some kind of juggernaut on drugs, he's not gonna feel it anyway. And a person can take three steps forward and still stab you. That's why your partner is there with the firearm. Even one shot is not gonna drop somebody. It's not the movies. It's not the movies. That's not how real life works. So it's, everything happens in a matter of seconds. It sucks, but at the end of the day, 
if if you don't have a reason to be in fear, you have to at least protect yourself. And that's why that's in the use of force. When a police officer hears that radio go off, it's not like he has a choice uh, where he's going uh, or he or she will go. And they're going to that call. Now, it could be anything from a uh, simple person coughing, baby not breathing, a domestic. Um, the way I was trained is um, the only thing that goes through my head is I start formulating plans because you got to, you know, up in where I work, assistance is much closer. So now I got to hear who's coming with me. And I got to remember what's their strengths and weaknesses, how am I going to respond, and how the situation goes. Like I said, there is nothing scarier for a police officer than doing a car stop. Um, you're, you know, that they're on home field and you're going out of your car, your safety, walking up to them, and you don't know what, you know, that's why cops hate tinted windows. You don't know what's going to be there, and you and you're trying to. You have to focus on the driver and the and the passenger, and so there is like that's like Officer Guest said. That's when your training kicks in. But even with all the training in the world, once you are become afraid or you or you become fearful, some you get tunnel vision, and and you can't. Your whole world get smaller and it's the subject is between you and the subject or you and the threat, I should say. And, you know, I've, it doesn't matter who it is. Uh, a threat's a threat. And like you said, uh, a car is a, there's a million places to hide a firearm. Um, and you don't have a chance to react. You're looking, you know, even when your cops in think, think they're safe, they're not really safe. You look at Los Angeles, there's two cops, we're just sitting in their cruiser, and I don't know what the person was, uh, a child or a little person, but just unloaded it on them, you know. I mean, uh, they had no reason to be fearful of that guy at all. And, you know, next thing you know, they're both of them in hospital. So it's, uh, it's hard to say, you know, like I said, training, but then there's always the fear, and most of us have the same fear of being shot and having uh, – uh, the unknown is that's that's the scary thing. I think uh, I think it's been uh, really amazing for both of you guys to share your your experiences, especially your personal experiences like that, and give our listeners real insight into what's going on through the police officers' minds as these things are going through. Right, our first discussion uh, about uh, Mr. Floyd, everybody everybody watching and, and you two gentlemen especially. Like, well, that's not going through any other police officer's mind. But to understand where your mindset is in these situations is, is really helpful for the discussion. And being able to, to listen to other people and their experiences when, when they see you coming is part of this discussion, right? So when, when people in a minority community see police coming, you know what their mindset is. And for us to ha continue to have these kind of conversations where we can share experience and, and keep the conversation going, I, I think is, is a great start to start to heal and start to move forward and start to make uh, connections. So uh, I, I think it's really been amazing what you guys have shared with us. So I want to thank you both. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, just to echo that sentiment. Um... 
you know, that's kind of why I have some side conversations with Brandon because I, I mean, I know, I know Brandon personally, but it is important, you know, whether, whether there's agreement, disagreement, alignment, lack of alignment, the first step to kind of mending what's going on is at least knowing what everyone is thinking as, as Mr. Kramer said. So I thank both of you for being so candid and, and open with your experiences and, and your insight. And we really appreciated your time today. Thank you so much to both of you. Um, we, when we, we definitely, when we were planning out mapping out um, our episodes, we definitely wanted uh, to make this happen um, and to have you all uh, on the episode to really give your insight because this is important. And I, 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 I don't think that this happens enough, um, these candid conversations with actual officers and with law enforcement, the people who do this every day. Thank you, guys. Thank you. I want one thing to say with regard to what I said before about um, poverty and opportunity and education. Uh, Mr. Kramer, I, I, I don't know how well you know Ms. Pe- uh, Ms. Pin, but uh, I don't think there's anybody, uh, not saying it pa- uh, patronizing, um, I don't think it's a, she has a very forceful personality, very intelligent, and uh, I think you can be hearing more from her. And it's a pleasure talking to you. I, I really respect a lot of things you have to say and you're a uh, very nice insight. Same thing with Malik. I was able to, uh, the first time I met him, uh, we shook hands. We were very cordial. I think right off the bat, we, we had a mutual respect that, um, that started and I'm glad that I was able to participate tonight. Um, well, as a guest, I wish you a long, healthy and prosperous career. I, I'm, um, I'm at the end of it. You're at the beginning of it. Listen, please be careful. Take care of yourself. Thank you, LT. Thank you. I appreciate those sentiments, Lieutenant. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Discriminology Podcast. Be sure to subscribe and to follow us on Instagram at Discriminology underscore podcast or on Facebook at Discriminology 3. Until next time, peace.